Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Holland's remit, primary remit, his only remit is to just score goals. It's De Bruyne's cross, Rodri and Diaz both going for the same ball and Haaland strikes it! Hello there, you're listening to the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. I'm Ali Maxwell. We've had a really fun start to the year. Enjoyed talking last week in particular about the notion of squad depth and how it applies to the Premier League leaders, Arsenal. Uh, This week, I've got with me two of the same members from last week's gang, Michael Cox. Hello there. Hi, Ali. All well? Very well. Looking forward to today's podcast. Feels like it's been a strong start to the year, Premier League-wise, both at the top, where there have been a ton of fixtures between big six clubs, but certainly that relegation battle in the Premier League as well is well, probably horrendous to be part of it, but entertaining as a neutral. I can't think of a time where there's been so little clarity as to which of the three clubs will go down in a few months' time. Yeah, it's quite exciting on both ends, actually. And um, maybe not necessarily going to be a battle for the top four. That's the only thing that might be lacking. But yeah, overall, I think a pretty good season so far. Good Morgan to Mark Carey. Mm-hmm. Hi, Ali. How are you? Very well. Straight off the plane. Straight off the plane, a little bit sleep deprived. Um, but Where have you been? I have been in uh, Cologne, Germany, um, for reasons which will hopefully become a bit clearer soon when I have a piece out. But I went to the uh, the VAR centre um, for the Bundesliga um, and managed to catch a game, Schalke against RB Leipzig. So uh, Tom Warvel, previously of this parish, will uh, be happy to know. I ch- checked out Leipzig and they're looking very strong. Yeah, they put on a show for you. Didn't they, Leipzig? 6-1 winners against Schalke. Not the strongest opposition for sure, but I'm interested to know how you felt about the way that they played and what they're looking like ahead of a Champions League tie against Man City in a couple of weeks. Yeah, they look really well drilled, really good. You could see that the vantage point that I had was right on the halfway line and you can see the the archetypal RB4222. It was just really, really uh, strong, really structured. As you say, not the strongest opposition in the world, but they um, they looked to be ticking over really nicely. And it's quite tight at the top in the mm. Bundesliga as well from a league perspective. So if they can carry on this run, then it, it might go to the wire. It was only a couple of weeks into the season when they sacked Tedesco and brought in Marco Rosa and seems to have had the impact that they wanted. I think he's only lost one league game since his appointment, four wins out of five in the Champions League and threw in the Pokal as well. So um, stiff opposition, I think it's fair to say, for Manchester City. That leads us on to today's topic. We're going to talk about Erling Haaland and Manchester City. We are just about past the halfway mark in the Premier League season. And I think it's fair to say that the two biggest stories in the league have been Arsenal and the fact that they are favourites for the title, having been, what, 30, 40, 50 to 1 uh, to win it at the start of the campaign. And then as an individual, it has to be Erling Haaland and his impact and his number of goals. Michael, we discussed Arsenal last week. So let's take a look at Haaland, uh, his impact on the Premier League and on Man City and on their style of play and their performance as well, because they do have a bit of a gap between themselves and Arsenal at the top. He has 25 Premier League goals, which would be enough to win the Golden Boot in 12 of the last 30 seasons. 
16 if you include shared golden boots. We, we might be used to it already after just a few months, but the numbers are bonkers. Yeah, it's pretty mad. Um, I was at his debut, his Premier League debut away at West Ham on the opening day. And he won and scored the, the penalty for the opener. Then he scored the second. And then when he was on the hat-trick, uh, Guardiola took him off. And he looked quite grumpy about that. I think maybe he's, his default expression is a bit grumpy, to be honest. But he didn't look the best pleased. And I thought, it's not often you get a chance to score a Premier League hat-trick. <laughs> and he scored four since then, <laughs> which is more than Drogba or Cristiano Ronaldo or Nicolas Anelka scored in their entire Premier League career. And obviously, he's only been here for half a season. So, yeah, I mean, there's a really good chance he will break the, the Premier League record for most goals, which is 34 in a season, although that was for a 42-game season. Mm -hmm. For a 38-game season, it's Mohamed Salah, who got 32 in 17-18. So he's only seven away from that in half a season. Do you think we made it enough of Salah scoring 32 from, you know, a very attacking wide right position in 17-18? That, that in itself... Looking just back four years later seems pretty astonishing, but this is is pretty next level, Mark. Yeah, I mean, he is completely different level. I, I do think the, the Salah one is interesting because he is obviously from coming from a different position. Um, Holland's remit, primary remit, his only remit is to just score goals. It, we can come on to it in, in terms of what he offers, maybe out of possession in other parts of his game. But yeah, it is quite remarkable. 25 league goals. It's more than anyone else across the top five European leagues at this moment. Uh, and the next highest is Harry Kane on 16. So to be nine goals ahead of the, the next competitor is quite astonishing. Um, that's just shy of 1.5 goals per 90, which is just hilarious. 1.2 non-penalty goals per 90 if we were to do it in a bit more of a, a fair way, which I like to do. Um, and yeah, so his non-penalty expected goals, I think, which is interesting, um, per 90 minutes is currently 0.8. So it shows just how much he is overperforming kind of against that. I think it's eight more goals than his expected goals that he's actually scored. So he is running a little bit hot, but I don't think there's been a season, at least since he was at Dortmund, um, where he hasn't overperformed against his expected goals. So it shows how much of an elite finisher he is, but it still might be that he might kind of have a bit of more of a difficult time um, in the coming sort of weeks and months because he's just performing at a ridiculously high rate. Uh, Mark, it, it's interesting, isn't it, that there's probably a notion that moving from the Bundesliga to the Premier League comes with a certain tax or a certain race difficulty level. Certainly thinking back to someone like Timo Werner, what became pretty clear was that the, the types of chances and goals that he mostly seemed to score in the Bundesliga didn't present themselves to quite the same extent in the Premier League. But when it comes to Haaland, that doesn't seem to be so much of an issue. Yeah, Timo Werner is one I, I had in mind. Kai Havertz as well, Jadon Sancho for different reasons, kind of high profile players who've come from from the Bundesliga and not done quite as well or not hit the ground running quite in the same way that uh, Erling Haaland has. So yeah, it was something that John Muller actually wrote um, at the start of the season. I still think he definitely has a valid point um, in saying about the Bundesliga tax. It's, it is a real thing. Um, but given that Erling Haaland just seems to not play by the rules and everything yeah. else, um, it's certainly the case here as well that just the Bundesliga tax doesn't seem to apply to him. And where are we at with XG overperformance slash underperformance for individual players discussion because as someone who's been an interested observer for quite some time now it, it feels like we settled with um, people who have a very deep understanding of XG mostly saying you don't need to adjust expected goals to the quality of player because we are using 
you know, millions and millions of shots. And we have seen that actually the best players don't always and consistently overperform their XG. And there, there are lots of people for whom that just doesn't quite compute who would look at Haaland and hear you saying he's overperforming his XG this season. He's overperforming his XG over the course of his career so far and say, well, doesn't that prove that at the very, very, very top level, some players just are better than the model. Um, I note that Mo Salah is underperforming his XG this season. So I do think it's still an interesting discussion and one I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on. No, it's absolutely true. I mean, as you say, when you're right at the very top level and you have an elite finisher with the quality of Erling Haaland, then um, you are going to see a little bit of overperformance. But almost percentage-wise, that overperformance isn't quite as much in the whole, in the wider scheme of things. So if you were to look at it, you know, at the end of his career, right from the start, there wouldn't be a massive, significant sort of overperformance because the main, more sustainable thing is getting into those positions in the first place. And that's what Erling Haaland is so, so good at, finding pockets of space and getting those chances in the first place rather than overperformance almost being plenty of shots from 40 yards and then that's simply unsustainable. Um, the thing where you can be confident with Erling Haaland is that you know he's going to continue to get into those positions. Um, and of course, he's going to continue to be, while he's at Manchester, City be fed those chances um, but I do think it's an important wider point that in terms of expected goals I think if you were to look at it across the whole uh, career for Cristiano Ronaldo for example someone who we consider to be obviously an elite uh, forward elite striker um, across the whole the course of his career he is pretty much at par in terms really? of his um, expected goals and goal scoring so it shows the value of statistical models well and, and it's still I think very interesting, Michael, just to hear the fact that Cristiano Ronaldo, one of the greatest players of all time and of his type of player, perhaps the greatest goal scorer of all time, has not really or significantly overperformed his expected goals over the course of a whole career. Yeah, it's remarkable. And uh, yeah, I agree with you that it's something I'd like to know more about and maybe see more articles about in terms of which players can consistently overperform. And more excitingly, which players consistently underperform as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw on this topic uh, an interesting tweet, an interesting graph from a fantastic Twitter account called uh, Mark R Stats, mm. who's very famous in the analytics community and has been doing consistently good work for as long as I can remember being interested in it. He put out a graph that illustrates performance in the next season for the top and bottom 20% of players based on their over or under performance to expected goals. And I'm not going to describe the graphic to you because it, it is visual <laughs> inherently. But the conclusion I thought was really fascinating. Only 10% of the top players of the over performers are likely to maintain their level of over performance the next season, while 90% of the bottom players, those that underperformed in one season, we're expected to improve their numbers. So we're not talking about, it's not the case that 10% of all players overperform their XG consistently. It's 10% of those that do for a whole season, do so again the next time. And again, it just comes back to this, this sense that you can't outshoot it forever. Maybe unless you're Erling Haaland. Yeah, maybe. But I think the final point I was going to make on it is that you can continue to have the same process and that's sort of the expected goals, the underlying numbers. If you continue to get into those right positions, then more often than not, you are going to continue to score goals. But 
that's where the kind of the fluctuations happen where you can only do so much. So if the goalkeepers for a period of 10 games have the, the most amazing game, then you've done everything that you can do other than necessarily score yeah. the goal. But your process has been good, which is why you can see over the long term that will even itself out, whether that is good or bad. A, a defender, it might nick off a defender and you know hit the post or whatever it is. So that's why expected goals are valuable because it shows that you're getting into more sustainable areas to, to score. You then executing that shot is kind of then you're at the hands of maybe the goalkeeper, the defender, and they might be in the short term um, performing very well and, and doing their job well to actually stop you scoring that goal. Bring it back to Holland, Michael. One thing that struck me as potentially interesting for this discussion about finishing in general and matching up overperforming or underperforming your XG numbers. Holland's goals for Manchester City this season have almost all been very high quality chances. His XG per shot will be fantastic. He plays for a team that consistently creates him good chances with cutbacks or crosses, for example. But he's also scored of his 25 Premier League goals, five with his head, five with his right foot, his weaker foot, and that leaves 15 with his stronger left foot. And some of the finishes with his right foot have been very impressive. Some of the finishes with his head have been very impressive. We know that expected goals takes into account whether you are heading the ball or kicking the ball, and a header is considered a more difficult chance. And therefore, in theory, or at least I've always thought, a really good header of the ball as a number nine will likely overperform their expected goals on headed chances, probably, because they're just better at headed chances than your average striker. It strikes me that with Haaland, because he's so good with both feet and his head, that would lend itself to being able to overperform your XG more than your average striker. Because, and please stop me if I'm talking nonsense here, if I had 30 expected goals worth of chances over a season and 10 XG were headed chances and 10 XG were left-footed chances and 10 XG were right-footed chances, I guess I would hope to hit my XG with my right foot, my stronger foot. I probably wouldn't with my head because I'm not very good in the air and I probably wouldn't with my left foot because I'm weaker on my left foot. I guess what I'm suggesting is watching Haaland, it feels like, He's so good with all parts of his body that that might lend itself to this overperformance. Yeah, and I think there's probably a further thing as well where if you are, like myself, Sally, very one-footed, you often shift the ball into worse shooting positions so you can get it on your stronger foot, mm. right? And if you're two-footed, like Sadio Mane, for example, I've noticed this happens with, defenders don't know which way to show you so they can't block it as well. So no, I think you're probably right. And I think, He's definitely improved with his head, or certainly statistically he's improved with his head. And I think that tends to come later now. I, I don't think there's many centre forwards in the game that are really good with their head at a young age. I think it's probably been a shift in, in terms of, you know, how youth games are played, how training sessions are devised. I mean, I remember someone, uh, even like Romelu Lukaku, who has the stature you'd expect to be good in the air. I remember there being a thing that he actually just didn't like heading the ball and just had barely practiced it in training because it was never a part of his upbringing. You can imagine that. The, the way academies operate now, you're not swinging in 50 crosses a, uh, a training session for, to, to head in. And in fact, that might actually be kind of outlawed soon with, with rules about heading. So yeah, I think heading tends to come a little bit further down the line, but obviously he's, uh, he's not very far down the line in terms of his career, but it's certainly something he's improved on. 
I mean, thinking about heading as well, you're not going to really have a, a headed shot with a second touch, mm. obviously, because it's going to be the, the first thing, the first time you hit it. But I think it's a wider point that Erling Haaland does seem to be getting into areas where it is just one touch and finish. So it, not having to be on his quote unquote weaker foot from maybe even 16 yards from a different angle. He's often, he just needs to get something on it and yeah. good connection with his uh, his weaker foot or, or indeed his stronger foot. But it feels like all of the goals that he scored at least this season have been one-touch finishes or very few finishes and so close to goal because of that XG per shot, as you say, that it's just getting good contact. I can't think of one off the top of my head where it's been a kind of a bit of a dribble, take on his man, get it onto either his left or his right foot and then shoot. Yeah. So I think that feeds into it as well that he's just got he's in such good areas that he just needs that one touch and it's it's game over. I think his one goal from outside the box this season was a right-footed shot from just outside the box and he had sort of created the space for the shot himself after a, what I would call a half dribble. I can't remember exactly. Maybe it was against Wolves, Wolves perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Away, away at Wolves. Right, yeah. yeah. But otherwise, you know, his right-footed goals have been incredible like diverting cutbacks, mm. the sort of chances that are really difficult with your weaker foot in general because it's not natural to do. He seems to do that better than than anyone. One thing I've been interested in, Michael, is I think before Haaland started playing for City, but after he'd signed, we talked about the fact that style-wise for City, one of the things that it might change for them would be an ability to go longer if necessary. We, we didn't think they would go long very often, but we thought with Haaland's size compared to every other one of Man City's players and even their last established number nine in Sergio Aguero, who's very small in stature and, and not so good in the air, that they could and would go long to him uh, and, and hope to win the seconds and play from there. And if you look at his goals in the Bundesliga, a lot of them are transition goals, you know, playing through the press and then Haaland having space to, to scamper in behind, sprint in behind and finish. If you look at his 25 goals, there haven't been that many incidences like that. No, you're right. Only a couple. There was one at Brighton, or against Brighton, I should say. It was a kind of a hopeful ball into the channel from Edison. And he fought off Lewis Dunk, I think, and then finished. But yeah, you're right. They've generally been kind of poachers' goals. Um, not really reliant on his, his physicality, mm. really. Well, that opening day against West Ham, was that his first goal or his second goal? He, he had the Second, yeah. His second goal. That felt like a snapshot of this is what we're going to see from Man City and Holland, right? They played through a press and then De Bruyne got a little bit of space and fizzed a beautiful through ball and, and Holland finished 1v1. And aside from one other goal against Palace, I don't think that's happened at all. No, you're right. And that goal against West Ham was kind of interesting because I think he did kind of contort himself a little bit to finish with his left foot. He kind of ran around the yeah, ball a bit, yeah. didn't he? Um, but yeah, generally it's been the kind of goals that City have been been scoring in you know in general since Guardiola got there albeit with a, a different finisher I mean I looked at the numbers in it and looked at the difference in through balls simply per per 90 minutes or just in general um, compared with last season and there doesn't really seem to be too much difference so really? it's to your point it just seems to be that they are still kind of building in very much the same sort of way um, they're slightly having to adapt to, to Holland but they don't seem to be really any more vertical in the way that they are um, playing, but I think that is very true to Guardiola's sort of element of wanting to have control. Um, and I saw a quote from him saying that the faster the ball moves forward, the faster it comes back the other way. So I think he's always still intent on sort of preventing the the transition and keeping that element of control. So I think it seems to be, if we're asking the question, uh, Manchester City adapting to Holland or is Erling Holland adapting to Manchester City? I'd probably say it's it's the latter. 
Would you agree with that, Michael? When you've watched City this season, do you think stylistically they look notably different to last season when Kevin De Bruyne was their top scorer playing in attacking midfield, the season before when Gundogan was their top scorer? I think I've changed a bit. I mean, it's not... um, He hasn't changed in terms of the first two-thirds of the pitch, if you like. But I think the, the way that they do play in the final third, it now is all about him. And I think there are times where... Uh, players look for him too much. I think you do get that, not just when it's him, but when you get a big number nine. I think sometimes there's just a tendency to think my job is just to play it into him. I think Alvarez has had that a couple of times. And we know obviously from the World Cup that Alvarez can score goals himself. But to me, when he's played for Man City, it does feel like he's playing second fiddle. And uh, I think that can be an issue. So a small tweak to the way that they're playing, but but not a major one, more, more just adding a very different and specific weapon to the armory and uh, it feels like he has been very well suited to finishing the sorts of chances that they were probably creating in the last two seasons but it was a lot more spread around wasn't it at that point Michael? Yeah definitely I mean it was very unpredictable who they played up front I mean there were so many players who filled that role at times Uh, Bernardo Silva played there sometimes Foden played there Uh, De Bruyne certainly played there Gundogan like you say was their top scorer two seasons ago pretty much every attacking player had to go at playing the false nine role and I'm not sure Guardiola ever settled on one whether that was because he didn't think one was perfect for it or because he liked the unpredictability but there is the predictability now and it's not just that Haaland's starting every game it's that he's starting every game through the middle because even when Gabriel Jesus was there who could play either through the middle or out wide you had that that flexibility I think that's the interesting thing that that Haaland can't play wide. And I think that might be not necessarily an issue, but I think in certain games, maybe the, the two against Arsenal that are coming up, maybe in the Champions League, Guardiola would maybe want to do something di- like completely radically different, which I don't think he can do now. That was exactly what I was going to say, actually, in terms of the fluidity of Manchester City's attack last season was that you would have players who would nominally be a, a number nine, like Jack Grealish would start as a false nine and he would pull wide and then someone else would fill that gap. And as the defender or defensive midfielder, you wouldn't know who to pick up, when to pick them up. And that sort of allowed them to open up spaces and they would just beat you down eventually, maybe not in the first 10 minutes, but they would get you eventually um, you know, and, and wear you down. Whereas now you do know that they are more than likely to, to look for for Holland. Um Again, just thinking of the numbers, there doesn't seem to be too much difference, but still maybe noteworthy that they are averaging 18.5 shots per game, um, 18.5 last season per game and 16.5 this season. So they are taking slightly fewer shots, which may be that they are kind of looking for maybe quality over quantity. And that fluidity was that they were kind of peppering the, the goal a little bit more. But there does seem to be a massive focus towards Erling yeah, taking a, the higher proportion of the shots. So are they a, a better attacking team now, Michael? A worse attacking team or the same, but in a different way? <laughs> I think they're pretty much the same level, just in a completely different way. Yeah, you look at the overall numbers. I mean, they're scoring... Uh, and shooting and getting roughly as many points as they have over the last five seasons. That's not a bad thing because they've won four of the titles in the last five seasons. But it hasn't been as simple as the one thing they're lacking is a number nine plug and play and they get to the next level. Mm. I think they're basically at the same level. And the interesting thing, I think, is the, the statistical impact on others. So last season, we know that the goals were shared around. If you look at the expected goals per 90 for the other attacking players... They're almost all down quite significantly. So Maris has gone from 0.62 to 0.37. Uh, Foden, 0.39 to 0.32. Grealish is pretty much the same, to be fair. 
Gundogan has fallen significantly from 0.47 to 0.27. Bernardo Silva, the biggest drop from 0.24 to 0.09. And as you say, uh, Kevin De Bruyne, his game has changed quite a lot. In XG terms, it's gone from 0.24 to 0.17. But you look at the actual kind of overall figures. Last year, he scored 15 goals and got eight assists. So he was twice as much a goal scorer as an assister. And now it's three goals and 11 assists. So he's gone back to what he was in kind of 2018 19 that period I mean I don't think that's a bad thing I think he's probably the best player in the world at playing the final pass but yeah there has been a shift he was winning games on his own at times last season and now he's he's gone back to being the facilitator I I can't think of any particular quotes off the top of my head but I feel like KDB might be happier and more comfortable in this sort of role the facilitator role the assister kind of role. I mean, he's got a pretty good chance of breaking Henri's assist record, which for the type of player that he is might be more significant than being Manchester City's top goal scorer, shall we say, in a title winning season, which of course he was last season. Yeah, maybe. Although there's been so many examples of players who are on course to beat at a halfway point and falling short. <laughs> Pogba think... as well. Oh so, yeah, Pogba. What I will say is when Pogba had eight assists in something like eight games, I think we did a whole podcast about assists why assists could be very noisy and yeah. quite misleading and basically said these are these aren't real yeah, this isn't sustainable long. so at, at the halfway point in recent years De Bruyne Ozil and Fabregas have all been on course mm. to get it but obviously a small sample size and a, a noisy kind of uh, category I think is an issue but I, I kind of agree with what I think you're hinting at there and that I don't want De Bruyne to just be a goal scorer I do I did fear last year he was going to kind of get what I would call a touch of the Wesley Schneiders where he he has a a hot period of scoring goals and then just thinks his job is just constantly to shoot from 25 yards when actually, you know, your whole game, mate, is that you're the best in the world at playing the final pass. Um, But yeah, like you say, I think he's more of an assister. I think he likes that role. I mean, just to add to that as well, speaking of XG before, um, I remember doing a piece on this at the roundup of the Premier League last season. No one overperformed their expected goals last season more than Kevin De Bruyne. So it was that a lot ah, of the shots were going in. I think there was, he's got three or four against Wolves last season. Yeah. Um, and some of those are amazing finishes, but um, highly unsustainable. So kind of coming full circle with the expected goals versus goals, um, it wasn't sustainable. And now he's kind of reverting to type. Thierry Henry that he's chasing in a sense, but he's also chasing a, a, a ghost of himself who who did match Henri's record just a few seasons ago and, and five assists from De Bruyne to Haaland in the Premier League this season. That is the highest number between two players, as you might expect, albeit only just. There are a couple of combos on four goals as well to keep an eye out for. So the difference in the numbers that we're talking about, Michael, and I cannot get my head around a team going from having six players averaging over 0.4 XG per 90 last season, Torres, Mares, Sterling, Jesus, Gundogan, Foden, to one player averaging over 0.4 XG per 90 this season. And he's at 0.98 per FB ref. It is, it's pretty radical, isn't it? And it's all because of one player, one new signing. There can't be many examples at the very top level of a player having this level of impact in how a team goes about scoring goals. Yeah, definitely. And there's two comparisons you can make. One is to the Manchester City side of last year, as you've just done, and the other is to the Arsenal side of this year. Um, their top goal scorer 
They've scored only 18% of their goals. That's Martin Odegaard. And Holland's on 47%. So, yeah, two Norwegians. I think there's a good case for saying that the best two players in the Premier League this year are both Norwegian, which is uh, pretty unusual. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep. You heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hello, I'm Adam Hurry, host of a unique football podcast. One of the top 20 football podcasts in Guatemala. A cult football podcast. No, actually... It's one of the most important football podcasts. Football Clichés, a product of nearly 20 years of obsessive research, is a podcast about the mundane and magical depths of the language of football, the curious and sometimes almost subliminal things that define the way we consume the modern game. At what age is a player eligible to roll back the years? When does a club's highly rated conveyor belt of talent turn into a fabled production line? How many types of goal-scoring header are there in the footballing vocabulary? Football Clichés doesn't just leave no stone unturned, it looks at every single stone and wonders what's the threshold for a stone to become a rock, but for football, obviously. Listen for your sins on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Are they, because of this, the almost singular focus on one goal scorer? Do you think that harder or easier to defend against in terms of you're an opposition team setting up a game plan for Manchester City this season? Does this make them easier to defend against? Or does it make it harder because he's the best number nine in the world? I would say it makes it a little bit easier. I think at least you know what you're going to get. We we know that in certain situations, he does just appear unstoppable. But I think that flexibility and unpredictability in the final third was... It, it, it was really difficult to play against. I mean, looking back, it is quite remarkable that for two seasons, City just won the league without a striker. I think we took that for granted at the time. It is really impressive. I, I think the caveat to all this is... The decisive games are still to come. Like the, the the league, there's there's two games coming between Arsenal and Manchester. Well, actually, a third in the FA Cup. There's two league games coming between Arsenal and Manchester City, and I think they're going to be really interesting, especially with the Guardiola Arteta history. I'm sure Guardiola would have loved to have done something completely unpredictable, but I just don't think he can. And of course, in the last stages of the Champions League, I mean, Holland's record in in the European Cup. Is fantastic, but he hasn't really got that far yet. We haven't really seen him in the quarterfinals, semifinals yet. So it's those games that are going to define the season. And I think in general, it's those games where Guardiola likes to to spring a surprise. 
I, mean, I think I spoke about this before in terms of the best players. In order to to stop them, you spoke about it with Lionel Messi. In order to stop them, do you just simply stop the supply line to them? Mm-hmm. And Manchester City, as you said before, Michael, the first two thirds are still impeccable, still really well trained, obviously. So, is it more? It's more of a question than anything. Is it more difficult to? stop the supply line or stop holding could you double up on him that would then free up space for for others to kind of build up and they can city can still hit you in in other areas of the pitch but i'm just trying to think out loud would it be a case of stopping holding by just standing Mm. on him and having one one behind him one in front of him or would it be to stop the supply line i don't think we've really seen kind of a masterclass from a team who's actually quite done that in terms of stopping holland and could it be that arsenal have picked up the extra points that they have over Manchester City in the league this season because if you chop Jesus's head off, you have to deal with three other heads, Martinelli, <laughs> Saka, Odegaard, for example, whereas Manchester City, and we're talking tiny margins here, maybe in one or two extra games where Haaland is to some extent marked out of the game, don't have as the variability of of other options to cope with that. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And the thing is with Holland at this stage of his career, he's not offering that much other than goal scoring. Um, and I think that's natural because at his age, no player is complete. That's obvious. But the stats are quite remarkable sometimes. There was a game against Bournemouth where he didn't touch the ball once in the first 15 minutes and he only had eight touches overall and didn't score. Uh, the next home game, uh, I think it was against Palace. He only played seven passes. He did score three times in that game. <laughs> But, I mean, for Guardiola centre-forward, these are kind of extremely small numbers. And I do think we've seen a slight progression already. I think he's trying to come short and link play more. I think he did that quite successfully in the first game against Manchester United. Tried it in the second game, probably not as successfully. But I think it's something we'll see in years to come. I think he'll get better with his all-round game. He's only got three assists, um, which, you know, playing in a Manchester City side, who's scoring as many goals as they do, Obviously, you can't assist your own goals. But uh, it's. Well, Mark uh, was talking earlier about flicking it up and then heading it with your yeah. second touch. That's, Maybe that's that next, could count. That's next on the agenda. But yeah, I think he'll become a better link player in, in years to come. And, uh, you know, if we're saying at the moment, I think we're all kind of broadly agreed they're not necessarily a better team. I think they could be with this same 11 in next season, the season after, because I think Haaland will get more out of the players around him. Yeah, because he is used to more of a transitional style of play or was from previous seasons. So he didn't necessarily have to have the the sharpest touch in tighter spaces. I do think it's, as you say, it's something he's going to have to improve. But um, looking at the average across the season, he's, he's averaging just 24 touches per 90 minutes, which is among the bottom 10% of forwards in the Premier League this season, which then you factor in that he plays for a team like Manchester City, who are so possessionally dominant, kind of is even more striking, um, I think. But... Again, of course, which is to the point that we're making this whole episode, that there's no right or wrong way to to be a centre-forward. He's scoring so many goals, so it's not to criticise him. I, I remember doing a piece about Roberto Firmino and Jamie Vardy and comparing and contrasting their sort of touches per shot or touches per goal. And, um, you know, Vardy is known to to not necessarily get involved in the play too much, but he's obviously prolific when he does, um, does shoot and score. So there's no right or wrong way, but... Um, yeah, 24 touches per 90 minutes across the whole season is quite striking. I, I know he's happy and uh, scoring goals, but I think what he wants is win. But he has a special talent, so he has an incredible sense of goal. So he didn't touch one ball and the first touch is goal. So he's Erling. Well, of course, we're heavily focused on Haaland, the player. 
But we have to talk about Pep Guardiola, the the manager, the puppet master, if you like, who is in charge of, of all of this, who is overseeing, I guess, a, an evolution of sorts with Haaland as its totem, as its kind of number one symbol. He had another milestone. It feels like there are a lot of Pep milestones. He had, he had his 500th top flight league game in the Manchester derby. Opta tweeted at the time uh, that he has the most wins and the best win rate of any manager in Europe's big five leagues since his first season in 2008-2009. That's any manager who's managed over 100 games. Uh, Michael, Pep's a huge part of the Holland conversation uh, and the word evolution always crops up when we're talking essentially about, oh, this thing that a Pep Guardiola team's done is interesting, isn't it? I wonder why this has happened because he likes to get in front of problems, doesn't he, before they arise? Yeah, he does like to change. That's the funny thing about he's changed from being unpredictable, if that makes sense. He was Last year he was changing within the season mm. and now he's changed from that season to this season and got a very fixed plan. And I suppose it's interesting because it is the opposite of what we've spoken about with Guardiola for most of his career, kind of pioneering the use of uh, playing with that centre-forward. Obviously, Lewandowski is a big caveat in that because he scored prolifically. But I think he was also very good in terms of his link play. He was, for me, he was, or is, a cross between a number nine and a number 10. And if that was not true, he wouldn't be playing at Barcelona under Xavi at the moment. So yeah, it's it's going back to, I suppose, a more rudimentary way of playing. But it has been interesting. I'm not sure Guardiola would design Haaland if he could design his ideal centre-forward. So yeah, adjusting to seeing how he's coped with that kind of player and a player as well who, I mean, he has to play every game. It's not like he's a a plan B you can bring in and out. He's a top class player who's coming into his prime years. Um, I mean, it's probably going down a different route, but the start of last season, City win for Cristiano Ronaldo. You know, and that would have been, I think, a different kind of situation because I think, I don't think he would have played every game and I think that would have, created a more variable approach whereas now Holland is playing absolutely every game so what would Pep build in a lab if he was creating his perfect number nine well I think they've got to be good at leading the press I think Holland's broadly good at that and I think they've got to be very good at coming short towards play as well I always thought he was a bit of an Aguero skeptic in his first two or three seasons at City Aguero scored goals but he was sometimes left out for the really big Champions League games Guardiola tried to use him in different positions. Often he'd be left out and Gabriel Jesus would play, whether through the middle or through wide. I think Aguero actually improved a lot over the course of his time with Guardiola. I don't think people appreciate the extent to which he went from a quite one-dimensional player to a really good around centre-forward. And that's why I've got faith that Haaland will, will evolve as well. But I don't think he's quite there at the moment. What you described as as potentially being Pep's dream number nine sounded quite a lot like Gabriel Jesus, Arsenal's number nine, formerly of Manchester City. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, Guardiola never really fancied Jesus as a number nine, I thought, and, and ended up playing him on the right last year. And, and Jesus was, at the start of last season, quite outspoken on the fact he preferred playing on the right and just going down the line and having quite a simple role. So the fact he's gone to Arsenal and is um, is impressive, really, in his all-round game. He hasn't scored that many goals for Arsenal, really. Um, but I think his link play and his pressing and, and all the rest of it is is absolutely there. So, yeah, on the basis of this season, they're almost opposites, Haaland and Jesus. We've been mostly talking about Manchester City and Haaland in the Premier League so far on the pod. But if we can assume that winning the Champions League would be 
the dream for Manchester City and for Guardiola, that the number one ambition and goal of this season, not that they can't achieve more than that. Does this conversation change at all if we're just talking about Champions League football? Is there anything about the, the, the style of football or the tactics of games in the Ch- Champions League knockout and Haaland's role for Manchester City that makes you think things would be notably different for Manchester City this year? In previous seasons, it's always been, oh, Pep's overthinking this and you've touched on it earlier, but there's not much to overthink when you've got a fixed nine. It's just who plays outside of him and behind him. Yeah, I thought when Haaland came that he would improve City at home against the the weaker sides because he's got that penalty box threat, but he might hold them back in the in the bigger games. I'm not sure that's necessarily true so far in the sense City have dropped a few points in home games where you think they're quite winnable. I think Brentford would be the obvious example of that. I mean, Brentford, off the top of my head, probably played deeper than any other side, you know, defensively without the ball, and he didn't have much of an impact in that game. So yeah, we'll have to see with the... With the big Champions League games, I think stylistically in a tactical sense, I think probably having a fixed number nine is less ideal. But at the same time, so it feels like so many Champions League games, big Champions League games the last two or three years have just been so chaotic. They've just been decided by one player having a storm or like a three or four minute period where something mad happens. And you just feel like Holland is quite suited to doing that kind of that. thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, you saw... Leipzig this week mm-hmm. from what you saw and from what you understand about their style of play and how wedded to it they are are they going to fully go for City are they going to fully press City and if they do does that increase the chance for ha- Haaland to get those sort of chances that he doesn't get very often in the Premier League yeah, it may well be the case yeah I mean he'll be used to playing against well, Leipzig in general but obviously in a Bundesliga style so it may suit his strengths but I don't think Manchester City will will change too much I think on the note of the the cliche but it's true that Haaland's sort of brought in to, to be the difference in those sort of um, deciding games those really tight games I don't personally think that Haaland's someone who will create something out of nothing I feel like he is the one to get on the end of something if Manchester City have an issue in the the creativity side of things on a certain evening I think that's where Haaland will also be a victim of, of that as well rather than him sort of taking the game by the scruff mm. of the neck as, as a comparison you think about the was it the Raheem Sterling glaring miss a few seasons ago for Manchester City you think those sorts of things where Manchester City ultimately do continue to to create even in the games that they've gone out in in the Champions League and that's where I think that Haaland would be the difference in more of his finishing rather than necessarily him being the the difference maker of creating something out of nothing. Mm. It's very, very interesting, isn't it? I mean, we are halfway through the season. What we've seen from Haaland in the first five months of the season has been unprecedented, has been incredible, almost using the truest sense of the word, word, incredible for Premier League standards. And yet, Michael... The narrative of City's season and the way that Haaland's impact on the team will be measured is pretty simple. They either win the Champions League or and or Premier League. And certainly if they win the Champions League, the narrative will be Haaland's the, the difference maker. Haaland's the reason they, they got over the line where previously they didn't. But if they don't win the Champions League or the Premier League, there will be this retrospection of has... Haaland changing the style meant that Man City have lost what they had previously. It's like we've already had five months of an incredible story, but in five months' time, we probably won't be thinking about August to January at all. The story is still to be written. 
Yeah, I think that's fair. And again, it's worth pointing out, they haven't just signed him for one season. He's going to be there for a few seasons and he's only 22. I mean, I think he's going to improve so much and be a much better all-round player. So they might well not win anything this season, but I don't think it necessarily means that the, the signing itself has, has been a failure. Well, it's been great to hear from you both in terms of incredible research for, for this pod and the stats that you've presented, but also your your take on the style and on, on what it's meant for City's style of play, the way that they attack, the way that they look to score goals, what it means for an opposition to set up a match plan to try and stop them. Erling Haaland's been an incredible part of this Premier League season and it's great to dedicate a full episode to that. So thank you. Michael and Mark for joining me this week. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Let us know if you have. Let us know if you haven't and why. And let us know what you'd like us to talk about in future. We're lucky to have a very long leash. We're lucky that the things that we're interested, uh, football tactics and football tactical trends, are, well, limitless, basically. So please, we do see your suggestions, whether you tweet them to us, whether you comment uh, on the podcast page, on the Athletic app, and we'll certainly consider all and any suggestions. So please do get in touch. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast feed. You'll get every episode and any bonus episodes that might drop in the coming weeks and months as soon as they are published. And make sure you subscribe to The Athletic today. If you go to theathletic.com forward slash tactics, you'll pay just £1 a month for the whole year to have full access to the writing of Mark, Michael and their tens, dozens, hundreds of colleagues covering football and other sports, the best place to read about sport and football on the internet. So join up with The Athletic today, subscribe to this podcast feed, and we'll be back again next week on The Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.